This Bonfireside Chat Appendix This Bonfireside Chat Appendix episode is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com forward slash duckfeed TV. Ooh, badass with a motorcycle. Guns out for Bonfireside Chat. Um yeah, you should go there and support us if you don't. Uh, that's how we keep the lights on, and we are going to make new shows. We are close to making new shows. Uh, so head on over to patreon.com forward slash duckfeedtv. Thanks. Some of our landings were desperate adventures. We are now prepared to meet the inevitable counterattacks with power and with confidence. My name is Gary Butterfield. My name is Cole Ross. And you're listening to Bonfireside Chat. It is a Kindle appendix. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh, no. It's on fire. Um, um, and uh, this week we are reading your responses to uh, 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 the second part of Irithil, including Anne Orlando. Whoops. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this, Anne Orlando is in this game. But we're past the spoiler wall, so you knew that. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> um, yeah. So the uh, we're reading those. You guys came out in force, which we love it when you do. So because of that, we're going to kind of get moving uh, mm-hmm. here. But before we have a little bit of follow up, um, Allison Baker, friend of the show, personal friend, mm-hmm. uh, says via contact. Hey, guys, I just wanted to write in to clarify the paintings found in the first part of Irithil in the room with the first silver knight. On the podcast, you weren't able to identify all of them. So I did a little research and it turns out they're all concept art images that can be found in the design works books for Dark Souls 1 and 2. From the left, they are Frozen Ilium Lois, the Duke's Archives, Nashandra in her human form. The Old Iron King's Throne, and Anne Orlando. Not sure if any plot significance can be attributed to these findings. Also of note, someone recently wrote in about the Wolnir fight taking place in a different area in the early trailers for the game, but weren't sure where it was. With some investigation, I was able to determine that it seems to be a slightly flooded and less adorned uh, with treasure version of Yorm's boss area in the profaned capital. Again, I'm not sure if this has any lore significance. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Al- person who wrote, or, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Allison isn't the first person who wrote in about the uh, the paintings, um, but that second mm-hmm. one is actually a new piece of information. The person who had uh, wrote in before, they said that uh, the, the uh, boy, um, that Wolnir was actually in the Cathedral of the Deep. Right. And the reason they thought so was because of water on the ground. But mm-hmm. I watched the video that Allison sent, um, and it actually is clearly Yorm's boss arena. Yeah. So. So, very cool. Um, possibly interesting i mean like you know nito used nito used to be in the painted world the centipede <laughs> demon used to be on the roof of the church like that could mean something it could not yeah um but yeah yeah i don't i don't i mean especially just like fuck if it was the cathedral okay maybe but here now no, i'm just like that that doesn't seem to make any sense so just yeah uh, just a re- re- remix um yeah uh, also other people wrote in um some more forcefully than others here's a hint don't begin your feedback with for fuck's sake <laughs> um because <laughs> Um, I, upon closer inspection, yes, that, uh, that painting in there is the same painting from Dark Souls 2, like the cursed one there on the wall. Um, uh, yeah, maybe don't begin your feedback with for fuck's sake. Thank you. It, it, it's pro- <laughs> probably, yeah, probably not worth getting that upset about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it is, uh, I've said, I quote, you know, Bob Mackey, friend of the show and friend of mine. Uh, everybody who gets really mad about minor errors on podcasts should be forced to listen in real time while they look up everything on Wikipedia <laughs> yep. during recording. Yeah. Um, it is something that like, you know, you do, mm-hmm. you do some, re- like I do some research mm-hmm. for the show. Um, there's a lot of stuff in these areas and, you know, 
we've got a lot of stuff we're doing, <laughs> you know, like it is, it is a, it is a busy podcasting life that we do and people recognize that and they come up and they say like, Hey, you know, you guys put out a lot of stuff. How do you do it? Um, and you know, we do our best. I like to think we do a good job every once in a while. Something minor like that mm-hmm. will fall through the cracks. Yep. It's part of why we have these appendix episodes yep. is to correct ourselves and to be corrected. Mm-hmm. So don't be mad about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and know, also, like, It's not a, it's not a big deal. <laughs> and if you're trying to be jovial, uh, recognize that joviality does not come through in text. Right. So if you start an email and it's literally like for fuck's sake, say, uh, <laughs> which I, I didn't get the, the, the message, um, so yeah. I don't know how if it went on to you know to <laughs> no, say anything. No, it was it like, was pretty. Uh, your parents yeah. are. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know. it was it was it was pretty much the, the 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 whole way through. And you know, just like that isn't one particular person. Um, I mean, there was was one particular person who did that. Um, but you know, like just we that that, that is a general thing that happens. And so like it's not that the thought hadn't occurred to us that it was Nashandra. In fact, we spent it's, a lot of t- exactly <laughs> we we did we talked about it being, and we're just like we're not entirely sure what yeah. that was was saying like. We have to we have to go like do that research. And yeah. then people took that as if we were saying that's definitely not Nishandra. Yeah. Like we expressed doubt like, hey, that doesn't be like it. If it isn't Nishandra, what does that mean? Because that's fucking nonsensical. And that's there. part of it. And too. that's why so, I was resistant to making that conclusion that it was. Extend a little grace with the fact that we're trying to make sense of a, a game and want it to be a holistic whole. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, it is easy to initially throw out information that doesn't make any fucking sense. Mm hmm. Uh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we appre- and and this is not to say we don't appreciate uh correction. No, because we we love them. Like yeah, we is- have a whole section of an episode of, of these episodes dedicated to errata. We yeah. firmly believe, you know, again that thing about papers. A paper is only as good as its corrections column. We surface yes. this. It's just you know, and not everybody who wrote in about this was 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 a real dick. But you know, the 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 kinder ways are the ones that are going to surface. And that doesn't mean you have to spend like a paragraph like SNRD. No, please don't. You could just because that gets like, cut. <laughs> a real, a real simple way would have been that painting is definitely in the Chandra. Mm-hmm. Here's a here's a link. You know, if you want to include a link, or even just saying that's definitely in a Chandra. Like, yeah. I just don't understand. If it, I don't think it's really worth getting uh, frustrated by. No, and also cue feedback um, about us being uh, a little bit too particular about the feedback we get. What whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what fucking ever. Uh, Anywho, uh, do you want to let us know what Scott says? Yeah. Uh, um, so so Scott writes in, and I alluded to this in the main episode, but I want to read the body of what Scott wrote. Uh, we have evidence of Aldrich's consumption of Gwendolyn having a measure of influence on him. So I find it plausible that he could have perpetuated part of the illusion uh, by, uh, of, uh, sorry, part of the illusion of the Silver Knights. Uh, I then immediately went and disproved my own theory by verifying these Silver Knights leave flesh and blood corpses when killed instead of disappearing like the illusions. P.S. I have taken to calling the bridge beast a Yarnum possum. Like Yarn and Possum. Yep, Yarn and Possum, pretty good. Um, the, so the when I didn't really bring this up in the episode because I didn't want to derail us. Mm-hmm. Um, the so uh, ascribing significance to whether something leaves a corpse or not is a real tricky thing. Yeah, because there's so many things that just that that do or do not throughout the series. Yeah, and it's rarely significant. Like it happened to be significant with Dark and Orlando mm-hmm. because we we had illusions, you know, that we left. But when you kill a uh, a Taurus beast mm-hmm. or a Taurus demon in uh, the Demon Ruins in Dark Souls One, they don't leave corpses. Right, they they fade away. That that's not an illusion, you know. So it's like it doesn't necessarily mean much. The fact that they bleed, I think, maybe is a little bit more. But that feels mm-hmm. more of like a bloodborne thing. Yeah, like when there were different types of blood. This feels like this could be, go either way for me. Mm-hmm. You know. 
Yeah. So I just wanted to, it was, it was something that I personally didn't notice. So I wanted to make sure it was brought to light. Absolutely. Yeah. It's worth thinking about. It doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about. It's yeah. just that like whether something leaves a corpse does not always lead to a lore path. Yeah. And then also whether or not that corpse ragdolls. <laughs> exactly. Which leads to a fun path. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, Dalton says uh, via contact, the Sullivan beast are taken straight from the design of the beast of darkness from Berserk. Uh, there are many designs in Dark Souls three taken directly from the Berserk manga, but this is one uh, that is by far the most uncanny resemblance. Yeah, that is spooky. I mean, it's not spooky. It's not like, oh, what a coincidence. But like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of insane watchmaker would make two of these things? <laughs> uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's been a while since I've read Berserk. Yeah. So I didn't recognize it right away, but I've looked at uh, comparison images and it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah, cool. definitely very cool. Man, um, I might actually buy a Warriors game. That Berserk Warriors looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I think so too. And like, I, I played Hyrule Warriors thinking the same thing. Like, oh, maybe I'll like this with a better skin mm-hmm. and didn't. Like, I think Hyrule <laughs> Warriors is pretty boring, but Berserk might actually draw me back in even yet again. <laughs> yep. They couldn't get so. you with Gundam, so they started uh, moving on to different stuff. Yeah. It's getting smarter. Me... It's learning. <laughs> it's, it's a learning franchise. <laughs> Um, now, go, getting, getting on to the actual responses about this area, um, John writes in, Anne Orlando uh, was initially a giant bundle of glee for me. This is the moment uh, that we've been waiting for since Hades Tower of Flame first tricked us into thinking we were returning to the City of the Gods. However, once it was all said and done, all I could say was, that's it? Maybe I'm just misremembering, but Anne Orlando felt significant in Dark Souls 1. In Dark Souls 3, it's basically just a staircase with a weird wing off to the right that goes nowhere. Another staircase in a big empty hall with some spiders and sludge. I can appreciate that this shows how far this uh, how far down this golden city has fallen, uh, since the protagonist of Dark Souls 1 absolutely wrecked Gwyn's plans and possibly killed his son, uh, who was maintaining the illusion. Aldrich's sticky putty self uh, taking up residence possibly didn't help much either. But that's not the problem. I love the environment. I just wish that there was more to it. To me, uh, this little taste just felt incomplete, uh, like most of the Dark Souls 1 references in the game. Sure, we went back to Orlando. Sure, Aldrich was there devouring a god. Um, and sure, it was uh, great having a boss battle in our old stomping grounds. Uh, but it all could have been done with either more Orlando or none at all. Yeah, I think uh, when we were talking about how... Um... We were talking about for somebody who didn't know Dark Souls 1, but it would be true for anyone that this is just kind of a title screen in two two rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not very big. I can see that. And it does just kind of end. Yeah. You know, um, so it doesn't have that kind of climactic, you know, in when we run a Dark Souls or Anne Orlando in Dark Souls 1, like the world opens up. It's a really big moment. There's a lot mm-hmm. of game left here. It's just kind of that branch ends and let's never speak of Aldrich again, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and that's kind of a, kind of a bummer. It's still I mean, it works for us for the reasons we kind of enumerated in the episode. But yeah. I think that did follow what you're saying follows. Yeah. And, you know, and just it's uh, it's up to everybody, their individual tolerances for how much, because like if I had to go through all of Anne Orlando again, um, a lot mm-hmm. of Anne Orlando, especially once you get inside of uh, the cathedral is a uh, is empty space. Yeah. yeah. There's <laughs> so, a lot of space between a lot of bridges. Yeah. Um, yeah. The um, yeah. So uh, Brian says via contact. Um, I wouldn't feel bad about the point where you realized Irithyll was the base of Anne Orlando. Uh, I didn't uh, realize I was on the ground floor of the anal rodeo, okay, Uh, (laughs) until the very obvious ruined spiral stair machine. Nonetheless, I was excited, excitedly texting my friends to see if they've gotten as far as I have, wanting to share in the shock and awe. I was exploring the Boreal Valley as the physical location of the painted world. Uh, But can you blame me? The snow, the Dollgate, the scary monster bridges all screamed to me the painted world. 
perhaps the painted world and Orlando are closer than we first thought. Maybe based on the Gwendolyn's uh, or on Gwendolyn's illusory magic, the painted world was a real section of the valley. Yeah, but that also implies that Orlando is right next to uh, was right next to the painted world all along. Yeah, and, and also there's, that there's the painted a world is a like, physical location. Yeah, it's not. It's it's a prison. It's another dimension. Yeah, you know. So it could be like a mist cross- thing where you're connecting to like a far off place. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like it actually, well, we, we talked about that with uh, the Sable Church of Londor mm-hmm. in the last episode, how that's not convergy, wergy. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I have been generally skeptical of literal interpretations that tie the painted world to this rather than just kind of like, oh, there are some similarities. Yeah. It could be kind of a wink, but <laughs> without some additional text, like I'm not totally all in on it. Yeah. But the idea that Brian's talking about of that bait and switch, like he thought he was definitely in the painted world and then saw it was Anne Orlando mm-hmm. is uh, is pretty, you know, I can I can sympathetic to that because yeah. <laughs> it does have some kind of uh, some of those similarities. If that's the first thing you see, that's going to kind of inform your your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, Gwilym writes in. One of my favorite things about Anne Orlando, about the Anne Orlando reveal, is how smoothly the game segues into it. It goes from reminding us of the place to showing us images of it, uh, to giving us treasure from it, and ultimately putting us on its doorstep. Um, even the brilliant yet seemingly unrelated set piece that is the Aldrich's faithful stairway includes Anne Orlando looming above, hiding in plain sight uh, if we're able to pull our ways or pull our eyes away from the chaos. Man, people really didn't seem to notice just the tableau. Sorry, I'm editorializing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm especially fascinated by the corrosive shit that's all over in Orlando. The popular explanation is that it's uh, Aldrich's filth, but I don't buy that. We've been uh, we've been to his own house, the very place where uh, his goo transformation happened, and everything there was in generally great condition. Sure, there are traces of decay strewn around, uh, but the uh, but they're the exception rather than than the rule. In Anne Orlando, literally everything is decaying. There is no part of the building that's untainted. Maybe Aldrich is letting his hair down and treating the place as a hotel he can trash, uh, but I prefer to read it as a commentary on the series. The rot has set in. That's not meant as uh, negatively as it sounds. I'm a big fan of both sequels, and the entire Irithyll section felt utterly magical. But the Dark Souls sheen has undeniably worn off. What was once singular is now a franchise. That's a bell that can never be unrung. And what better way to illustrate this cheapening of an artistic vision uh, than to have the first game's crowning spectacle appear in a degraded, defiled state? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's um, certainly kind of like a death of the author kind of thing, too. Like, that is a that, that is a way that you can come to it and kind of interpret, you know, just uh, the idea of, you know, the familiar and time passing and what has changed fundamentally about this yeah. familiar thing that you're kind of still tied to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, uh, it can also be both. Yep. Like the idea of this being Eldrick's filth and it also being a metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, makes perfect sense. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Something, so, you know, something that would, that, that is perfect and great and respected and, you know, built by this architect and main, architect and maintained out of love and out of doing this. And then all of a sudden here's this other, other thing that comes into the same space and starts, you know, defiling it and wrecking it around perhaps as a metaphor for the team that made dark souls Two, walking into this world and <laughs> oh, shitting sure. on and disrespecting. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, and then, and then when you run into the two podcasters who have been shitting and disrespecting on the thing, and then, <laughs> um, yeah, I could, I can, you know, possibly, but I think that is, that is valid. Um, I didn't really, I didn't really get that sense. Uh, I've read a couple of like real metatextual treatments of Dark Souls 3 about Dark Souls 3 being about the series mm-hmm. and about uh, Dark Souls 1 as a game, which I think are all interesting to read. 
Um, but like you said, death of the author, like I don't buy the intentionality that much. Yeah. I mean, Not that it necessarily matters. If, if you like it, that's great. It's a fun exercise, but mm-hmm. I haven't read anything that I found very convincing. Yeah. I would want the, uh, I would want the text to be a little bit more, a little bit more cohesive before, before like the meta part can be built on top of it would be my, would be my own personal instinct on that. Cause I'm, I'm all about the meta textual stuff. It's just, uh, you know, it needs a basis. Yeah. Um, Eric says, uh, by contact dark souls and Orlando is a very different place from what's represented in dark souls three for starters, dark souls and Orlando is built onto a large cliff contrasting, uh, contrastingly, Dark Souls 3 and Orlando is surrounded by fairly low terrain. The bulk of Dark Souls and Orlando is entirely missing, and no rubble exists to indicate that it had once been there. Additionally, the height of Dark Souls and Orlando was presented as being much more extreme. I know that this last point can be chalked up to design limitations in the original game, but Dark Souls 3 and Orlando doesn't come off as very tall in contrast. Uh, together, this made it much harder to place myself in an Orlando from Irithyll than it might have otherwise been. For all the existing clues, there were some very extreme conflicts between my mental image of Anne Orlando and what we see in the general Arathil area. What do you think is the cause? Is it the passage of Aeons, uh, the land converging towards Lothric Castle, or is it just From's development team didn't make geographical cohesiveness a priority? Um, I think that it is the convergence with uh, kind of as an unintended but very convenient result of the final one there about the cohesiveness not really being a priority. Yep. Me too. It it definitely does not feel like the passage of time actually moving mountains and stuff like that's a thing that can happen, but is so hard to illustrate. Yeah. Um, The convergingness is such a like convenient narrative thing to just Mm -hmm. kind of like make anything work. Yeah. Um, And and that sounds dismissive. I'm kind of glad they're not worried about it. I don't want, you know, I wouldn't be necessarily happy with a game where like it just like you mapped Dark Souls (laughs) one and Dark Souls two and then we're sad that, you know, it meant something that they didn't match up entirely. Yeah. You know, that's not a different engine. It's on a different platform. Like, yeah, it would be kind of kind of bonkers if it did yeah. you know so i think it wasn't really a priority maybe shouldn't have been mm-hmm. you know and uh and convergy wergy is a nice little yeah excuse for all of it and also you know just the you take this thing that was a walled city at the top of the world and you know it says something about lothric that you know now you know you look up from this thing that used to be at the top and now you see lothric towering over it with its own kind of grand archive yeah. Um, you know, l- looking down as well, like it says something, you know, like quite literally about the rise of new kingdoms and the fall of others, you know, that yeah. this convergence has, you know, put this other city uh, uh, on top of what used to be the top. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it has a good effect and it doesn't doesn't really bother me too much. It doesn't bother me as much as the weather changing so profoundly. <laughs> but what well, is weathery weathery? <laughs> like it's, you know. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Philip writes in. The dual Sullivan beasts in the Aldrich Faithful Bonfire area were definitely the toughest encounter for me. In desperation after wasting several embers uh, just to get invaded almost immediately after leaving the Pont of Bonfire, I came up with a different tactic for summoning help. I had noticed that the, that the red and purple summon signs sometimes appear even without embering. I summoned one of the uh, purple phantoms, waved at the invader, and immediately took off down the ladder <laughs> to the uh, to hell spot. My success rate was about twenty percent in getting the purple phantom to help uh, to help out with the PVE. Clearly, most purples were expecting a fight club, and they were reluctant to help me with the toughest non-boss encounter in the game. I was so grateful when a purple seemed to get the picture and try to help out. I finally killed one of the beasts, and I let the second beast kill me uh, to give the purple phantom whatever tongue, ear, or scalp that they were uh, that they get for killing a host. I would know I don't PvP. 
Fighting the last beast alone after getting my bloodstain, thank Gwyn they don't respond, was much easier. On subsequent playthroughs, I would come back uh, when overleveled and had uh, much more success with the pair although it's never been as easy as Lobos or other streamers can make it seem. I've tried putting down my purple sign to help other players who don't want to ember, but it doesn't seem to catch on. Uh, do you think that using the purple signs for PvE co-op and non-boss areas was intended? I wish it would catch on. Um. Yeah, I think that... Uh, boy, intended is hard to, hard to say. I've had other people talk about um, getting purple phantoms to help them out, and I've done a little bit of mild helping with purple phantoming. Mm -hmm. uh, generally I'm just a huge dick, but like I've done a little bit of it. <laughs> um, so that's, that's pretty neat. I think it's impossible. It's possible yeah. to do so, but it just, it's really hard to summon here because of that fight club zone Yeah. Uh, for anything. Mm -hmm. So doing anything, it's, it's like a de area dedicated to it. And the Eldritch faithful is placed there. I think because the game wants you to go through this alone, mm -hmm. you know, or at the very least like challenge to your utmost, like this is supposed to be a difficulty spike. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of, the level design runs contrary to that yeah. of it being, uh, you know, being able to use purple signs or any signs at all, really mm -hmm. for PVE here. Yeah. I mean, I think that they intentionally built a wild card and a wild card obviously can, you know, help as much as it can hurt. Yeah. Well, I mean, even though the they, cards, they mostly, well, hurt. yeah. <laughs> and the cards, wild cards are always helpful. Um, that was, yeah. uh, that, that, that kind of broke down. Um, I'm talking like wild card in a Charlie Kelly kind of sense, but, yeah. um, you know, like they knew that was going to happen. And I think that it is, it is a nice, happy, chaotic accident whenever it does. Yeah. Yeah. I also wish it would happen more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jacob says, uh, by contact, uh, once I confirmed that the silver Knights bled and were actual people, it also gave me the idea that perhaps these Knights are puppets much in the same way that Gwendolyn is. From exploring Anne Orlando in Dark Souls 1, we know that the Silver Knight armor is not terribly hard to come by, and there's already a great deal of precedent for the idea of animate suits of armor in the series. It may not amount to much, but I do like the idea of maintaining a facade of holiness and power to lend credence to Pontiff Sullivan's slash Aldrich's rule. The same way uh, this is expressed with the outwardly beautiful Grand Cathedral decaying and infested with black sludge. I like to think that the Silver Knights are uh, that same sludge animating these suits of armor just for PR. Yeah. I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, religions do that all the time, appropriate something from what came before to le uh, lend legit uh, legitimacy to it. Sure. Yeah. I, I, do, I mean, I do just wish it was like there was text yep. about why there are knights now. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know what? I say that and that's giving it more too much credit. I wish there wasn't explicitly text that didn't that denied it you know <laughs> like there's text that explicitly uh implies continuity like yep. the knights are still here they still guard the old gods mm -hmm. like they they weren't a thing you know so don't it's not like it's actively stopping headcanon <laughs> yeah. you know and it's like it's like richard said in the last episode like item descriptions are the closest thing we have to a uh, omniscient voice mm -hmm. in the game like if we have to start doubting those uh you know yeah. And we, th there, there, there are times where there's dramatic irony where the, where the omniscient voice we know is wrong. We, but they always, know? it always but it's says, always cute. it never like, just says a statement. It says like some believe yeah. or like the tales tell, or this was believed to be, you know, things like that. Like it, it usually will give it that kind of a sense of doubt, yeah. you know, um, there. So it's, it's frustrating to me that like the, the silver Knights are kind of still a sticking point Yeah, me here. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, Randy writes in, <clears throat> In the latter half of Irithyll, the part that really stood out to me was my wedding to Henri. 
Throughout the entirety of my noble quest to become the supreme ashy hot dog queen of the hollows, Yuria and her colleagues had been all elbows and winks with their allusions to marriage and preparing my spouse, trying to rock to subtlety, uh, sorry, uh, tying a rock to subtlety and throwing it into a lake. I knew to which dark end this grim train trundled. Up to up until this point, I hadn't really cared. Um, as you well know, the side quests in Dark Souls 3 and the characters that fail to be propped up by them um, aren't the most engaging or robust. I was totally ready to eat this dude and get deader. However, making my way down the stairs, down, the, uh, down to the Hall of the Dark Moon Tomb, I found myself unexpectedly struck by the scene as presented. This quiet, somber tableau with poor Henri's corpse laid out, his face covered, had a sort of sad beauty to it. Um, I made my way to the altar and uh, and was faced with a prompt. I found myself hesitating. I'll be the first to admit that I've grown more sentimental as my uh, gears crowd behind me, but to my surprise, my first emotional response to this was that of guilt. This nice boy didn't deserve this. Compelled to scratch out a message expressing such, you don't deserve this, but hollow required ahead. Um, I felt absolved enough uh, in my own heart to proceed. Affording myself the freedom to indulge these small, self-made fancies when they surface has made me a happier person, I feel. I'm not sure uh, why this moment had such a strong effect on me, though. I suspect that it might be a potent example of that ascetic of dignity uh, that Miyazaki is often quoted about. This scene, which heretofore had been alluded to fairly blithely, somehow knew when it was time to shut the fuck up and let something just be. A rare tack that I think we all wish Dark Souls 3 adhered to a little bit more closely. Regardless, aesthetics can clearly go a long way in hammering uh, ardor into our hearts. A hammer that from software, some may argue, swings uh, with a heft unearned. Uh, with a heavy sigh and a glistening eye, I am compelled to disagree. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well well said. Yep. Well it's a it's it's an affecting thing, especially because, you know, there's a uh, I, have, I have a place in my heart for all of these solar types, you know, the constant companions, the ones who seem, you know, really solid. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, especially like Lucatiel carries a, a, a lot more pathos, you know, of of all of them, at least to me, to me personally. And mm -hmm. having this having this uh, lovingly authored of a bad end for this character um, definitely, it, it it feels like the intention is to uh, to, to to fuck with you. It is, uh, yeah. It's something that I, I think a lot about uh, in Dark Souls Three NPCs, and something that I, I think that they do really well, and why I think that they earn a lot of goodwill that is like sometimes maybe unearned is this uh, presentation, mm -hmm. because the presentation game has never been better. Um, like the voice acting is really really excellent, you know, in these things. So like Henri, you know, there's not very much to Henri as a character. Um, like the part of this that worked for me um, is this actual this culmination mm -hmm. of this thing with Henri. You know, the idea of her being an orphan and hunting down Aldrich and stuff is fine and pretty cool, but she doesn't say that much. That's like interesting. There's not that much text that like, you know, actually talks about her, mm -hmm. but her as a pawn for a delivery device for this kind of scene. Mm -hmm. And this uh, this this tableau is really, really effective for me as well. You know, so it wasn't so much like I have some affection for Henri like I like Henri. But this is what this is my this is the best thing Henri could have done. Right. Is die for the scene. Like this is way more satisfying than the ending where she beats Eldrick. Oh, like sure. that I have to bring my own, you know, uh, <laughs> satisfaction to it. This is actually like like exactly like Randy says, like this is just a quiet moment <laughs> of like intense kind of sacrifice. Yeah. And stuff that I really love. Mm -hmm. So um yeah. Uh Jan says via contact. 
the inclusion of the Luxstat always seemed unceremonious and weirdly unnecessary, but I think there's a little bit more to it than meets the eye. Specifically, the fact that it's functionally almost identical to the Humanity stat in Dark Souls 1. Both increase item discovery and curse resistance, and are called the essence of human beings. As such, luck and humanity in Dark Souls seem closely related, perhaps even interchangeable terms. Unfortunately, there's ex uh, extremely little in-game that refers to luck at all. The Hollow Gem, which allows for infusing of, infusing of weapons with luck scaling, mentions that hollow weapons are said to peer into the essence of its wielder, whose luck boosts attack. Honorary <laughs> Straight Sword is more informative, calling luck an elusive, essential property unique to humans. If luck equals humanity, perhaps that has something to do with why Yuria chose Henri in particular to be the player character's spouse. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Uh, I think the game mechanics make a strong case for luck and humanity being the same concept, but if you have any counter-arguments, I'd be interested in hearing them. The show is great. Thank you for hosting it. Um, I hope you notice that human dregs look a lot like collapsed humanity sprites. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The... Um, they're definitely related um, if they're not exactly the same thing. Like I, that connection is pretty explicit um, that luck and humanity and the fact that that is uh Henri's kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that matches her character really well. Yeah. Um, which again, like as I, I just mentioned last entry is like not super complicated, but is this <laughs> kind of like uh plucky hapless kind of like, you know, getting this, this kind of revenge her against the world kind of thing. Yeah. The way humanity has kind of been positioned in this game mm -hmm. uh, kind of historically or the series rather. Yeah. I think it's pretty satisfying because, you know, humanity has never been as prominent in uh, in the series as it was in one. Like it mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, as a concept, you know, these uh, the, this the, the, this thing that you kind of acquire and, um, you know, ultimately like manifests as these sprites and things, you know, uh, becoming less prominent or kind of like shifting to different things. I like the idea that in this kind of, you know, almost entirely faded out world where entropy is setting in even that essential force has become something again like elusive and essential is a wonderful way that the game describes it um you know and it becomes something just like a little bit more like desperate if you're relying on luck then all of a sudden like that that's like a little bit of a darker thing than relying on this thing that is uh you know ultimately like a aspirational and uh an inherent positive like humanity you know with a capital h is yeah yeah, and and I can't help but think if this was always the idea to make this uh, to kind of add that value to it, mm -hmm. um, like that elusiveness, and then you know elusiveness, yes, essential, no, like they don't think they made it mechanically, you know, it, it didn't quite do as as much as like even humanity in the first one, like mm -hmm. if they they could have tied those two concepts together a little bit better, yeah, because um, um, luck builds suck now, yeah, um, I mean I'm sure there's a way to do it and they're fine for PvP, uh, yeah. they really suck for PVE, yeah. Um, it doesn't, so it's kind of weird because this, this kind of response, like yeah. two months ago, I've been like, you know what? The game is doing a great job of doing that because I'm doing this mm -hmm. luck build with a sword and I feel really powerful through upgrading this thing. That's like part of your soul. It's not mm -hmm. like a, you know, you can't exercise your luck. You know, I'm yeah. upgrading something inherent to myself and it's actually making yeah. a difference in the world and I'm more effective. Yeah. Uh, now I'm not. You know, I read I'm, that I, I read that description, not so much like essential as mandatory or required, but essential as in of the essence of something oh, of the essence. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, even then, though, like with the idea of it being like it is supposed to be something special, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not mechanically special, right. like item find and curse resistance are not useful, really. Like item find is fine. Yeah. If you especially if you're grinding shit out. But like. It's not, uh, even if it's not essential, like needed, it's also not a good use of like taking the narrative and crossing it with the play. 
Yeah. You know, making me feel like I need it or I, I feel it, good about having it. And I think at that point it comes down to whether or not you think it needs to, it's, it's value needs to be reflected in the mechanic. As well, yeah. A, as and, opposed to being just kind of like a, like, like, like a narrative way of saying this is where that, this is what that idea ultimately became. Need, need is a strong word. Um, it would undeniably be stronger if it was reflected in the mechanic. Mm-hmm. Like if you can, if you can tie things, if it's a game and you can tie things in the mechanic and narrative, you should, mm-hmm. there's not an example where you shouldn't do that. Right. Like there are no games where that, that shouldn't be done. So it would have been cooler. It is cool on its own. Like it's resonant. I like it. Um, but that would, it almost was a little bit better. Yeah. You know, it's better adjacent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Better adjacent. It's, it's an A minus kind of expression of an idea as opposed to an A plus. Yeah. Um, Bose or Boaz, uh, says via contact, um, Eldrick gave me the feeling that he's a boss fight intended to be fought as a pair because of how, uh, he can be deadly at a ton of different ranges, particularly his second phase reign of arrows and magic attacks. It feels like you're almost supposed to bring somebody along, uh, someone else along, uh, so that one of you can run around dodging arrows while the other gets in a couple of hits. Just like in the original Anne Orlando, I split my time between boss runs and helping people new to the area by backstabbing silver knights pointing the way and gesturing frantically at the lever that opens the door. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, 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 I fail to see how co-op would like be necessary to make him easier or better just because so many of his attacks are just like explicit area denial kind of things. Like I almost see, you know, man, like co-op didn't really help out with Quillog. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost a, it's a very similar idea. I think the idea just being that like, Literally, he doesn't do anything while arrows are raining, mm-hmm. you know, so you can just get in some hits then. But yeah. the tricky part is that if uh, bringing in co-op is that that arrow attack is more or less doom. Right. So if you get hit by it, uh, you know, you can end up wasting a lot of somebody else's time as well yeah. by going through. Even though I did co-op it a lot, it's just because I, you know, I'm good at dodging the arrows. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so but yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. And it would, could be a kind of a neat like Orange Sand Smo kind of callback as that is explicitly a... <laughs> yeah you know, boss designed for two people or inversion, nor see yeah. inversion where you have this one guy who is focused on, uh, uh, running away and doing damage where it's opportune. And you have, mm-hmm. uh, you have two people, um, kind of focused on, um, pincering him into a place where you, uh, they can't help but take damage. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, Chris writes in, although I love dark souls, I'm not a lore hound. I don't get very invested in the character stories or the specifics of the world's history, preferring to just let the atmosphere wash over me. That said, Aldrich is one of my favorite characters in the series, and that's largely thanks to how unusually straightforward the storytelling is for a soul game, for a Souls game. Um, the thrill of seeing an Orlando Castle and that title card at the top of that elevator, all looking exactly as you remember it, is quickly replaced with disgust at the state of the interior. Uh, this place has been defiled. After Aldrich's epithet, the Devourer of Gods, is revealed, um, it only takes a few moments to piece together the rest of the story. He uses Gwendolyn's bow and magic attacks. His boss music quotes Gwendolyn's theme, and he is wearing Gwendolyn's torso like a party hat. So mm-hmm. Aldrich moved into my favorite part of Lordran, ate one of the, the original Dark Souls bosses, and shit him out all over the floor. Uh, there are certainly nuances to discover uh, through a closer reading of the item descriptions, uh, but I don't really need any. I love this guy, and it certainly doesn't hurt that he's one of the most fun bosses, both for co-oping and soloing. Yeah. yeah. Like we said, it is it is a, a real brutal elemental force of power. <laughs> or, you know, uh, a show of force, rather. Yeah. Force of power. That's not an expression. Mm. Um, show of force. Yeah, it sounds, like, it sounds like the force of power sounds like the title of a Yu-Gi-Oh episode. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> 
a brutal, a particularly brutal and elemental <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh episode. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it is really easy to understand somebody coming through and eating something more powerful. Yeah, you know, I mean that that happens uh, all the time. Like even back to, um, you know, uh, Demon Souls when you chase the fat official mm-hmm. through through one three, and then the uh, the penetrator kills him. Yeah, you know, it's like oh, like this is this thing that's been giving me so much trouble, and <laughs> what's this thing that's even bigger than it? Well, it dies in six hits, but it looks really really intimidating. Yep. It dies in six hit hits, and you can have uh, what's his what's his butt uh, solo him no problem, <laughs> yeah. uh, mustache man. Um, yeah, yeah, and finally, uh, just funning uh, Regavan says, "How different would the game be if what we think of as the most difficult bosses didn't have the expanded health bars at the bottom of the screen? Like, what if Ornstein and Smo slash Artorias slash Nameless King etc. had only the regular enemy health bars above their head? Like, if a person who finished regular Dark Souls got their memory wiped and then replayed this version, would they still feel as overwhelmed? I think they would feel more overwhelmed. If they just had a regular health bar? Yeah, first off, um, having that health bar uh, omnipresent on the screen, so you can always Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you don't have to, like, uh, camera search for it. Um, Also, whenever there's, like, a mini-boss who has a tremendous amount of HP and it's just this tiny little bar that hovers over their head... Each each attack that you do only takes away a small sliver of that, as opposed to, you know, just kind of one of these larger uh, ones where each attack kind of like takes off more real estate on the screen. It's easier to like gauge your progress, I think, when you have this one, you know, this health bar that is as wide as the screen. I think it's about proportion as opposed to like the absolute length. Yeah. Yeah, it would depend also when when you ran into them, though. The, the only way I could see it not working that way is if you went to a boss kind of right away mm-hmm. um, and then you saw that he took like, oh, this is like a regular enemy and mm-hmm. he's this tough. Yeah. Um, and you expect that from everyone. But I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad they signal it differently. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's good. Signaling is good. Anticipation is good. Yep. I also like seeing the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is uh, all every pretty much everything about how bosses are presented in Dark Souls is good. Yeah. And in in, uh, in terms of video games in general. Like you just you have a sense of like knowing what you're in for and and everything. So taking anything away from that, I think would be a detriment. Yep. Um, Yes. Thanks, everybody uh, for writing in. Um, If you have anything to say about Smoldering Lake or Demon Ruins 2 uh, now in chalice form, (laughs) um, hit us up at duckfeed.tv forward slash contact. Yeah. And um, if you want to support the network uh, financially, which is a real way to help us uh, do more of these things, go to uh, patreon.com slash duckfeed TV. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, ratings and reviews are helpful. Um, spreading the word on social media. Big thanks again to Richard Pilbeam mm-hmm. uh, for joining us last episode. You should find his uh, Jerk Sounds Frontiers mm-hmm. uh, YouTube series. It'll be in the show notes uh, for the last episode. Uh, but you should definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate him. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we got have deleted scenes. Uh, consider them a bonus. <laughs> yeah, if they exist, uh, they are a bonus. If not, uh, umbasa, and we will see you next week. Yep. And we all pray that we will have far more soon.